Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, author and University of Kentucky history professor Anastasia Kerwood talks about her book, Shirley Chisholm, Champion of Black Feminist Political Power. It's scheduled for publication in January 2023 by the University of North Carolina Press. Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm became the first Black woman from a major political party to run as a presidential candidate. Anastasia Kerwood began this interview with me by indicating that when she was a child, she was introduced to Chisholm when her parents showed her a particular photograph. So they had a photographer friend who took a photo of them in a hotel room with Mrs. Chisholm during one of her campaign stops. And I thought that that glamorous woman in the photo with them, when I saw it, I thought that that was my auntie because she dressed a little bit similarly. And so one of the things about Shirley Chisholm was she was a very sharp dresser. So I thought that she was my aunt. They said, no, that's Shirley Chisholm. She ran for president. And one day you could too. For a few years, I debated, should I run for president? Uh, And I decided not to. But the fact that I entertained the possibility and thought that it was a realistic thing that I could sort of decide to do or not, That came from seeing that image of Chisholm. So fast forward to my early years as a junior faculty member, and um, I was teaching a course on biography, and I wanted a biography of Chisholm to assign, and I couldn't find one. I just, all that was available was unbought and unbossed. Unbought and unbossed was one of Chisholm's two memoirs, published the year before she did run for president. It's a great read as a memoir. It captures a lot of her tone and her personality, but it has been the main source of information, biographical information about Chisholm since it was written. And it's a memoir. So as such, we're both historians. We've we've been trained to see memoirs and autobiographies as somewhat opaque, as telling us as much about what someone wanted us to think about that, their life. So anyway, there was no substantial work of scholarship that I could use. And so I wrote the book that I had wanted to assign in that class. So when did you actually start on this journey? It was 2007. Though so we're looking at 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. It took me about 14 years to write my bio. So it, it takes time. <laughs> so let me ask you this. Shirley St. Hill, was born in Brooklyn in 1924. And she spent a large part of her life in Brooklyn and in New York. But one of your chapters, you call her a daughter of the Caribbean. Why? Who Shirley St. Hill was, was rooted in a Caribbean family. And also in the time she herself spent being raised in the Caribbean. In New York and particularly Brooklyn, at that time was a borough of migrants, um, had many, many 
Black migrants from the diaspora. So she was born into a community, a Black community that had many Caribbean migrants. And then as migrants do, they maintained connections with family remaining, in her case, Barbados. So her parents migrated in the early 1920s, and they had left behind siblings and uncles and aunts and mothers and grandmothers in Barbados. So this family had a connection with Barbados. When she was four, young Shirley St. Hill was sent with two of her sisters to live in Barbados. And they lived there for six years. And they were educated in those British colonial schools, which for better or for worse, were in some cases very effective at teaching skills. In the same breath, they were also based on a British colonial hierarchy. But Shirley Chisholm later said that she got a lot out of that schooling. I also think that it was seeing Black people in charge of all aspects of her education. That that was really important to her. And she had this modeling of Black people inhabiting every role in that community. So she literally came out of that Caribbean context And then as she grew up and as she chose a political career, she ran into other Caribbean people in New York who were prominent in politics. And in fact, the vast majority of Black elected officials in New York and in Brooklyn were of Caribbean background. So Bertram Baker comes to mind, her own advisor, Mac Holder, these migrants or children of migrants turned out to be the people who were political pioneers in that So she had some substantial role models. Yes. In your own research, as you were working on the book and looking into her background, did you actually go to Barbados and speak with any surviving relatives uh, and visit any archives there? Yes. I spent several weeks in Barbados and really immersed myself. Um, In some ways, that landscape I don't think has changed very much since she was there, but um, I got to meet her sister um, who has since passed on, but her sister Muriel Ford was also born in New York, also went back to Barbados for that time and then returned to New York and then decided as an adult to move back to Barbados. And so I was able to have several conversations with her and look at some of her family photos and uh, documents And then I also spent time in the Department of the Archives and just do some genealogical research, just start tracing marriage certificates, birth certificates, or baptisms actually is what you find there, because the church is a unit of government like a county would be here in the United States. So she lived in Christchurch Parish when she was there, which was where her parents and grandparents, and in some cases, great-grandparents also lived and were raised. And so I was able to trace back all the way to ancestors who had been enslaved. Um, You mentioned Shirley's sister, Muriel, but she had two other sisters. Did you get a chance to talk to them? Are they still alive? What is their status? Uh, No, they have both passed on. One of them had a daughter who is the custodian of the estate. And I was able to visit Chisholm's former home and look at the records that were there in the house still. But, you know, as it turned out, 
Chisholm had a slightly contentious relationship with those two sisters, uh, Odessa and Selma, and her mother. She got along with Muriel sort of the best. There was a rift in the family, and it was never healed. It was a, a rift over an inheritance. The thing that I discovered about Chisholm is that she was incredibly ambitious. In fact, one of the working titles of the book was Aim High. She was driven to achieve and uh, had tremendous self-confidence. And so she did inherit a modest but substantial pot of money from her father. It was actually a, a life insurance policy and none of the siblings were named on it. And um, they thought that that was unfair. They thought that she had manipulated her father into giving that to her or that she should have shared it with them. And there was a great deal of discord about that. And the result was that she no longer uh, was really in touch with her family during pretty much her entire political career. She needed money to run a campaign. So it was 1964 that she ran successfully for New York State Assembly and won. Well, before we get into her political career, one of the things that you know is always fascinating to me is when you can go to family members and relatives to find a whole nother side or another perspective of the person you're writing about. So did you get another kind of sense of her personality in terms of having a person who grew up with her really talk to you about what she was like, as well as actually being able to see documentation at her home in Barbados? I never met Shirley Chisholm in person, listened to lots of recordings, watched video, but I had never met Chisholm. It was eerie. It was like Shirley Chisholm had come to life when I met Muriel Ford. They looked somewhat alike and they were the same size. And also, I think those two sisters were were both quite ambitious. So Mrs. Ford told me, well, you know, Shirley always said that she was the best in terms of academics in the family. But I want you to know that I was valedictorian and I was the strongest academically. She was in her 80s, and she wanted to meet at my hotel the first time we met. And she took the bus, and she walked herself several blocks to come to my hotel. So I got a glimpse of that independence, resourcefulness, (laughs) self-confidence. That's great. So now, how did Shirley St. Hill go from being a school teacher in Brooklyn to moving into politics and becoming a really active member in the political community there. She was an early childhood educator. So she noticed that the children she worked with, that they had some housing challenges due to substandard housing in New York City, public housing. And so she got involved first with tenant activism. From there, she got involved with an effort to elect a black judge in Brooklyn. And that effort was led by her eventual mentor strategist, Wesley McDonald Holder. This was in the 50s. And her memoir says, well, she went immediately into politics, but there was a break for a little while where she was climbing the career ladder in uh, New York City schools. But eventually, and she joined this effort in 1953. And for the rest of the 50s, she was involved 
with local political activism, uh, trying to get candidates elected, being an officer in the Bedford-Stuyvesant Political League. And she wanted to take over the Bedford-Stuyvesant Political League. Um, that's just who she was. Uh, Mac Holder was unhappy about it. They had a break. And she went and joined the new Unity Democratic Club. And that was a rival Democratic club to the existing Democratic organization in her assembly district. So, you know, a more famous example for a rival Democratic club is the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party in 1964. Right. But um, this was not just confined to those places. And there were these local insurgent clubs that grew up in New York. And in the case of the 17th Assembly District, which is where she was, um, it was an interracial coalition that was trying to take over power. And the way they did it was through elections. So they ran candidates for district leader, for assembly person. Uh, eventually they won in 1962. And then the person who won abdicated and Chisholm got to run in 64 and she did win. So that's the short version of how she climbed the ladder. But she was quite ambitious. And so when she went into something, she wanted to be the boss. In fact, she said, well, I went into teaching because I wanted to be able to tell people what to do. <laughs> and so if she was going to be involved in something, she wanted to be in charge of it. Yeah. So if people know anything about Shirley Chisholm, they know about her groundbreaking decision to run in 1972 to become the first Black woman to run for the presidency of the United States. So if you wouldn't mind reading the quote that you include in the book from the speech she gave explaining her reason for running. Certainly. So this was January 25th, 1972, and this is her official campaign launch speech. She said, I stand before you today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States. I am not the candidate of Black America, although I am Black and proud. I am not the candidate of the women's movement of this country, although I am a woman and I am equally proud of that. I am not the candidate of any political bosses or special interests. I stand here now without endorsements from any big name politicians or celebrities or any other kind of prop. I do not intend to offer you the tired and glib cliches which for too long have been an accepted part of our political life. I am the candidate of the people. And my presence before you now symbolizes a new era in American political history. Great. Now, you call this her manifesto of Black feminist power politics. So what do you mean by that? Black feminist power politics is a, it's a mashup of Black feminism, Black power, and Black politics. And what it is, is her realization of the multi-dimensional nature of people's lives and how power works within those dimensions. And then her determination to actually seize political power to further people's needs. So it's both a power analysis, it's a Black feminist vision of that that sees intersections. And she was intersectional before Kimberly Crenshaw wrote about the term and, and invented it. And she was unapologetically Black and a woman, but because of that maintained that she could see an even wider lens and make political change. 
in the service of democracy, in the service of redistributing power, questioning power, and reducing the hoarding of power. All right. Now, obviously, she was also a strong advocate of building alliances and coalitions. So given the the large number of organizations that she was either affiliated with or helped to start, and we're talking about everything from the Congressional Black Caucus, she was one of the founding members, now the National Organization of Women. Um, How did you conduct the research that you needed to document her involvement in all of these organizations and and the the people that she interacted with and who interacted with her. How did you do the research and then keep track of all this information? Well, it was a challenge because uh, Chisholm herself did not leave behind an easily accessible and unified archive. I had to go through these other organizations. And in some cases, I found that she was deeply involved. And in some cases, I would find that she was peripherally involved. But I would just look for clues in anything that she wrote or spoke about for her involvement. So in the case of the National Organization for Women, well, that correspondence that she had with them in early days, in the late 60s, uh, that's in the papers of officers of the National Organization for Women. And it's available on WorldCat. So WorldCat was my friend, but also the librarians of the uh, Schlesinger Library at Radcliffe were uh, very helpful for me to find those things. The librarians at Brooklyn College had a collection that had talked about some of the connections that she had with organizations. Some of them were covered in the news. So ProQuest historical newspapers, I shouldn't advertise for for a for-profit company, but it was extremely useful to be able to go back and find coverage of events because that also laid some clues for me to go back. Um, Interviews. So I cobbled together pieces of interviews that I had with usually her staffers, people who were young and who worked for her. The mother load in some ways was the documentation of the National Black Women's Political Congress. Those papers were in her personal papers that documented the founding of that organization and its sort of heyday and then um, a few of the years after she was involved. And that organization still, as far as I can tell, has a presence remaining. Are her personal papers housed somewhere specifically? So they are still in the possession of, of the estate. Oh, okay. So it's family members who have those. Okay. All right. So you're following the breadcrumbs wherever they lead you. Exactly. And how do you keep track of all the information that you're able to find? I work best with just tossing things into a group. I think that this is going to go in a chapter about her first year in Congress. And so it starts with a file. becomes a box. And then at the same time, I started writing immediately before I had everything. I'd find a document that I found exciting and I would write my response to that document immediately when I found it so that I wouldn't lose what I thought, but it meant. And um, so there are a few pieces of this book that were written 14, 15 years ago. Maybe, Maybe not that old, but but pretty old. 
and you know, I just start typing. When you say you start typing, you're not just typing in your impressions of whatever you found in the archives, but you're writing like a first draft of what you think will end up in the book? In some cases, yeah. Yeah. And so in some cases, I'll say, um, I have some archival notes, especially before we could take pictures in the archives. That's when I started this. So I would start typing notes, but then sometimes I'll, you know, I'll be reading along in the archives. I'll think, this is a bunch of BS. You know, somebody's talking about her or she's saying something and I'll say, what? This doesn't make sense. It doesn't match up with such and such. And then I go back through those notes or through the actual documents. And yeah, and I'll write an oral history um, that she did a couple of years before she died with Shala Lynch, the filmmaker. And, you know, I'll just write in April of 2003, Chisholm sat down with filmmaker Shala Lynch and she discussed such and such. And then if I get into topics from earlier, then I'll put them in this presidential campaign chapter. So I'll write a story. Well, she actually told the story of, of, you know, running into the uh, Democratic National Convention and having everybody angry at her and out to get her. And I'll sort of write what might or might not become the final version. But I'm not worried about whether it's the final version or not. I'm just trying to get the ideas moving along and on paper so that then I can at least go back and work with them. Some things I changed, but some things I like pretty well and, and I'll write transitions into them or I'll put them where they belong. So my process, I had to generate a good bit, but a lot of it is um, revising. And I cut a lot of words from this as well. So let me ask you then, how do you deal with the fact that as transparent and as direct as she was about most of her political opinions, she was also a very secretive person about her private life and even pretty selective about revealing some of her public choices. So as a biographer, how do you deal with the silences or the missing information from archives or from anywhere that you can find her writing? And then the inconsistencies of the accounts of her life. Yeah, um, the latter is a little bit easier, um, but the inconsistencies, I just named them. I just said, well, she said this, but I found another source that suggests that. And I'll say, well, you know, I actually think that the other source is more accurate because it matches up better with this or that. The silences are trickier Luckily, my mentor is Nell Irvin Painter, a very, very accomplished biographer of another public figure who was outspoken, but also sort of shielded from public eye. Um, Sojourner Truth was the subject of Painter's biography. And so that's been a very valuable framework for me to build on as I'm writing a biography. So what I do with those silences is I notice them and try to research around them. For example, I have found that Chisholm's father was in fact from Barbados, even though she said he was from Guyana and she was silent about his entire family on Barbados. And so I just did the genealogical research and said, well, no, here they all are on Barbados. 
So I've tried to research my way out of some of them. And then some of them I've respected. If she felt that the most important part of her life, you know, in, in the mid-1970s was her career, I let it stand. But then when she pipes up about it, for example, her divorce from her husband, Conrad, her first husband, I use that cue to talk about it. But I did not try to write or question what was going on between her and Conrad, say, earlier, because I don't have any material, first of all. And um, secondly, I respect that she was private about that. And, you know, I could speculate as much as I want about their relationship during the presidential campaign when they appeared to be thick as thieves. But I really just leave it alone. And then do you have any recommendations for biographers who are interested in exploring the life of a political figure, particularly politicians of color? Yeah. Um, roll your sleeves up, get in that congressional record. <laughs> Whether it's in the the hard copies are usually a tie online or ProQuest congressional. Um, but, uh, you know, just familiarize yourself with those hearings, all those congressional documents. It's yards and yards and yards of stuff. But when you get the hang of it, you'll get there. If they're not members of Congress, well, then go find the official proceedings, because that will point you to their record. As far as their lives in private, well, it's sort of luck. You know, I did a sort of a building snowball of trying to find people who knew her. And I was lucky that I got an early lead to a staffer who led me to another staffer, et cetera, et cetera. And so if it's somebody who has living acquaintances, then you'll want to find them. Other than that, if you're writing about 19th century people, pay attention to those silences. They will mean something. So just uh, be observant and be a student. And then finally, this is for anyone, start writing before you think you can start writing. Just write what your thoughts are. Keep a journal of the project. Whatever, Whatever way you can, just start writing because you need to start processing these documents as soon as possible. You just heard University of Kentucky history professor Anastasia Kerwood speaking with me about her book, Shirley Chisholm, Champion of Black Feminist Political Power. It's scheduled to be published by the University of North Carolina Press in January 2023. We recorded this interview via Zoom on September 8th of this year. To learn more about bio, or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a great day.